welcome to episode five of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the helm here at Talking Golf Central Studio One as we prepare to immerse ourselves in another wide-ranging discussion about the greatest game on earth. If you haven't already done so, check out some of our other podcasts on the Talking Golf Network. You'll find such gems as Derek Duncan's Feed the Ball and the soon-to-have-another-episode-drop Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis, among others. You'll find that at TalkingGolf.com, just the one G in Talking Golf. And yes, that was for your pleasure, Logue. I've also launched a bit of an experiment this week. I started a Twitter feed for the Good Good Golf Podcast. Many of you likely already follow myself, Adrian, and or Derek on Twitter. But the show feed is a good way to make sure you never miss an episode. And we'll also, no doubt, get into some discussion of the game from time to time as well. The handle is at underscore good good golf which Logue tells me is a power move there'll be a link to that in the show notes the underscore at the front power move uh, link to that in the show notes in case you didn't have a pen handy to jot that down of course the other way to make sure you never miss an episode is to subscribe which frankly is a dud word because it suggests that you have to pay but you don't podcasts for the most part are free to listen to that's certainly true of all the shows on the talk and golf network on the subject of money and costing I'll mention this from time to time, though not every week, and that is the Talking Golf Patreon page. It's there if you'd like to contribute something to the show, though there's no expectation or pressure to do so. You'll find the link to that in the show notes as well as soon as I've gone and got it because I haven't looked at the page for quite some time. Enough of the admin. Let's meet today's golf talkers. In studio with me, though at a safe distance from any of the equipment, resident path expert, Adrian Logue. Adrian, I just had a quick look at today's show document where we list all the stuff that we might talk about. If we get to all of it, we might still be here tomorrow. Lots to talk about in golf this week. Yeah, it's a work in progress, our, our list of topics, isn't it? But uh, we'll, we'll see how we go. Speaking of the Plenty distance debate, about. if it was made of paper, it could probably stretch from here to Victoria. A good <laughs> thing it's a digital <laughs> document. Nice segue. Yeah, nice segue. No, no Derek Duncan on episode five, which is a bit disappointing because we like to hear from Derek, but it does open things up so that we can fulfill one of the missions of Talking Golf, which is to bring in guests from time to time, and that is what we've done today. Now, a surprising number of you are likely familiar with the work of Matt Mollica, despite not necessarily realising it, because Matt is half of the brains behind the Rollback Alliance. We're going to have Matt and his cohort on to talk about the Rollback Alliance on another episode. But he's uh, one of golf's most ardent defenders. He's a dedicated history buff, an architecture node, host to many an international golf traveller, and the first person to leave an iTunes review for the Good Good Golf Podcast. Matt, they can never take that away from you. I'm looking forward to having a chat today. Thanks, Rod. Me too. Yeah, going to be good stuff. And the Rollback Alliance, we might we might touch on it briefly as we chat. But uh, as I said, we really want to explore that in a uh, in an episode down the track with yourself and your co- Now, who's the other half of the brains behind it? I completely forgot. Will Watt, the founder and editor of Caddy Magazine. Will Watt. Excellent. We'll look forward to chatting to you and Will about that further down the track. Now, before we go any further, news of the week. Justin Thomas won yesterday in Korea, which is exciting for Justin. In fact, pretty impressive. I saw a Justin Ray stat this morning. Golfers who've won... 11 times before their 27th birthday. It's about five of them. Spieth, Thomas, Woods. Mickelson was on the list, but he took him off. And somebody else. Anyway, it's a pretty short list. He's an impressive player. But, Matt, I'm going to come to you on this because you are a picture of sartorial elegance every time I see you. (laughs) Justin Thomas, of course, and here's the connection. Where's Ralph Lauren? Now, who sells Ralph Lauren in Australia? Yes, thegolfsociety.com.au. Matt, I think you've dealt with our sponsor, the Golf Society, before, haven't you? I have. I have since um, well, I, I first bought something from them a few years ago um, before their association with the podcast and, and on one occasion after they joined as sponsor. And they've, yeah, they've been really, really good to deal with. Great range, fast freight, 
great prices, um, some stuff that's difficult to get anywhere else in Australia for those who are listening domestically. Um, that sounds, yeah, really, that sounds really like an ad, Matt. I was hoping to get it. <laughs> you do a fair bit of online shopping there, don't you? And I, I do mean that Matt really is a snappy dresser, and Logue will attest to that. He always Endorsed. Looks, yeah, yep. fantastic around the place. So this is an Matt, area Matt's you, pretty much like 10%, 20% better at everything. Yeah, that's right. That, that's right. <laughs> oh, let's not build it up, Except Adrian. growing hair. <laughs> We've just got you in the growing yeah, hair department. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. only just got him. But, <laughs> but apart from that, pretty good. But you are a regular online shopper, are you not? This is a whole area of the golf business that kind of interests me because I didn't realise that a lot of this stuff, you see the guys on TV, it's hard to get that stuff in Australia because if you're an American, a lot of it's scripted. The stuff's all available in the shops the next day. That's not the case here, Matt? It's much harder here. Yeah. Um, and we get, I think we get parts of ranges. I think mm. they get small shipments. Um, well, we're so far away and we're such a small market, aren't we, in terms of yeah. dollars, I guess, for big international firms. So it's the age-old issue, isn't it? So there you go. Um, good stuff, yeah. So Ralph Loren is just one of the brands that they sell there, of course. Congratulations to Justin Thomas. Uh, what a player he is. Uh, golfsociety.com.au, make sure you go there. Did you pick out an You like to pick out an item each week, don't you, Adrian? You, you had the... I haven't picked out an item, but, um, yeah, check out the Ralph Loren stuff. There's uh, some... Uh, you know, Justin Thomas does model it very well. There's also the more upmarket Ralph Lauren stuff, which uh, for which they use Billy Horschel as their model. Am I imagining it, or is that, have they got that backwards, I Thomas and Horschel? Barely. <laughs> I, look, Billy Horschel, I'm not a huge Billy Horschel fan, but I've got to admit, he's a good-looking man, and uh, he wears those Ralph Lauren clothes very well. He Look, I'll, I'll give Billy this. He engages on Twitter, and he engages in genuine discussion. I disagree with most of what he yep. says, yep. but at least he puts him out, himself out there to do it. So, uh, so the guy... I have no thoughts on whether he's handsome or not, but I'll take your word for it. He's Logue. classically a, handsome. Classically handsome. Yeah. Isn't he not very tall? It, yeah. Well, but that doesn't matter. So is Tom a, Cruise. In a photographic sense, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, there you go. Ralph Lauren. What is it? RLX? You can get that too. That's right. Golfsociety.com. Yeah. And lots of other stuff, shoes and gloves and accessories. And women's golf. I was talking to Aaron the other day, and he said women's golf is a real growth area. And I don't doubt, having spoken to several uh, women who play golf, it's much, much, much harder to find good golf clothing if you're a woman than if you're a bloke. So just another reason that we should be happy that we're blokes. Enough of all that. Let's hook into the Google Doc, the behind-the-scenes Google Doc. Matt, you were exposed to the Google Doc this past week. You can see the relentless nature of it. I'm going to come to you first, Adrian Logue, for a talking point. Well, we've got a review, another five-star review of the podcast, this time from Simon. Who was mentioned first? In the review. Never, never mind that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the title of this review, Fun and Thought Provoking. This is from Simon241069. Uh, Rod, Adrian and Derek have great chemistry to go with their insight and a feel for the game at all levels. Very entertaining. Could listen indefinitely. Please don't do that, Simon241069. <laughs> we, we could go on. Highly recommended, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Well done. No, big shoes to fill there, Matt. Derek Duncan... Uh... Obviously, usually a part of the team. Thank you for that, Simon. Really enjoy that. Uh, you can feel free to go and leave us a review. Though, unlike most podcasts, I'm not going to suggest to you that it actually helps us. It doesn't. It gives us a bit of credibility. But if you really want to help the show and you do like it, share it with a friend or two. I don't know what it's like to have two friends, but if I had two friends, I'd share it with both of them. Um, what else, Adrian? Well, before we get too far into this podcast, I'm going to give you a rare compliment, Rod, mm -hmm. and just uh, uh, direct our listeners to the latest State of the Game episode if they haven't already heard it. Um, you had the exclusive to announce the um, the forming of CDP Golf, um, a new venture between Mike Clayton, Mike DeVries, and Frank Pont. Um, 
across three continents, pretty mm-hmm. significant global um, entity in the architecture business. And uh, it was a really good episode. Um, enjoyed hearing the three viewpoints from them and, uh, and, and somebody you directed traffic press, really well. And somebody had to press record. And, and, and I did that particularly and it was, well. It was a fascinating discussion. If, if you're into architecture, Matt, that was big news, wasn't it? Mike Clayton leaving yeah. OCCM and joining with Pont and De Vries. Fantastic if you're into architecture because those three just would, could do some growth. I really enjoyed hosting that, but I really enjoyed listening to the guys more than anything. They were fantastic. Frank was a, a real pleasure to listen to mm-hmm. on Derek's podcast mm-hmm. earlier in the year. And I think for those familiar with Clates and maybe less familiar with Mike and Frank, um, I think they'll be very pleasantly surprised. I think they'll they'll probably enjoy some exposure to what those two chaps have done around the world and hopefully it propels them to do more and more. Mm. And it'd be lovely to see them do something in Australia. Mike DeVries, of course, did Cape Wickham yep. on King Island, did a fab- fabulous job. I'm yet to see it, but I've not heard a bad word about it. Everybody in Clates, we all know what Clates. And I was particularly happy, Matt, to see... Uh, so much um, genuine, I hate to use the word love, for Clates after the announcement. I thought that was fantastic. So many people came out and were just so pleased to see that, because of course he gets to move back to the UK for the summer, which will be fantastic yeah. for him. So it was just lovely to see that, I thought, because uh, he's a great contributor to this game. I still think his contribution is underrated to golf at this stage. It's getting more recognition, but I think he's a fantastic contributor. I mean, I know that you know him, Matt, and you know him personally, and I was, I was really pleased to see that. Yeah. It's it's a great thing and it's and it's totally deserved for him. Um, he, I mean, we talk about people who love the game and he he genuinely does love it. He lives and breathes it every hour of every day. Um, I often joke with friends that if you were going to form an executive council or of three or five, or even if you were just going to have a global golf dictator, that Clates is probably the man. <laughs> the czar. <laughs> Yep. I reckon Deb would tell you not to put Clates in charge of anything. Certainly <laughs> board to give advice, but don't let him actually have control we, of the we, levers. We tried. We gave him control of ordering some ice cream once, remember? Oh, that was, God, it was a nightmare yeah. pizza. <laughs> Do you remember was, that? Yeah, the pizza as well, yeah. He walks into the ice cream shop and he says to the guy behind the counter, oh, whatever you reckon. Yeah. And the poor kid's standing there going, well, what do you want? <laughs> I don't know what do you want? Ah, oh, just give us whatever you reckon. Go, What's your best pizza? Give us one of those. Uh, yes, he's uh, he's one of a kind, so it was good to say that. Enough about all that. Go and listen to that. Uh, you, can, of course, can find State of the Game on the Talking Golf Network, TalkingGolf.com. How many Gs, Adrian? Just the one. Just one G just in Talking Golf. Just one G in Talking yeah. Golf, which I know you hate. Uh, I'll tell you what, I was particularly uh, keen to have a quick chat about this week because I think there's a lot in this to unpick. A friend of, our, well, a friend of mine, a guy you know, I think, I'm certain you know too, Matt. Rob Williamson goes by Yeti something on Twitter. He posted a video of Gil Morgan hitting a shot at the 1992 US Dr. Open. Dr. Gil Morgan. Dr. Gil, not Dr. Gil Morgan uh, hitting a shot at the 1992 US Did you see this, Matt? I did indeed. Okay. I, I, I think I... I think I might have watched it maybe 50 times. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it was quite hypnotic. And so that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. 127,000 views of that video and counting. I know that Rob has been personally taken aback somewhat by the response to it. What's that about, Adrian? Why has Golf Twitter gone nuts for this video? It's 196-yard two-iron, I think, from every a blustering gale. It's, there's so much to like about it, isn't there? Like it, the, you, it's, it hits on this thing which I always want in a golf coverage is you know what's at stake. You, you can see... The shot that's in front of him there, you can see the challenge that he's dealing with with the wind. He's got the ball below his feet. 
and uh, he's he's trying to think through. He's he's imagining a shot, and then he's executing it. And uh, <laughs> there's this like fantastic thing about it where the ball floats up, and there's a nice dark backdrop with some trees behind there, which lets you see the ball absolutely perfectly better than any shot tracker could ever show you. And uh, and it's so much enhanced by the fact that it's it's low tech in some sense. But uh, you, you know you don't get that opportunity often to showcase a golf shot like that mm-hmm. and that that tv coverage really nailed it um but i do recall a lot of this type of stuff back then like you know you'd get the cameraman laying down the cameraman would have been laying down on the ground behind yeah, this ball with the yep. camera pointing up yep. and uh that that was the way they shot most of golf they still shoot you know from behind the player like that with the camera on the ground but um yeah, the, the the big difference, of course, is that the play, the ball's just like launching straight up mm. in the air and you're not seeing mm. this shape of shot and the ball rolling along the ground. It's, yeah. yeah, It was a phenomenal guy. People are obviously captivated it, by well, it. Well, they were. What do you reckon, Matt? Why has that touched such a nerve? And, of course, the response was you just don't see golf like that anymore. And there's some truth to that, isn't there, with the modern equipment? Definitely. That was that was the case for me. I think the, the inventiveness and the creativity, uh, I think that the average golfer can – relate to that thought process they might not be able to hit a knockdown two iron 20 feet below the hole and have it never yeah. reach an apex of 30 feet in a u.s um, open <laughs> having, yeah. having led the thing through 54 holes and hit his first player ever to reach double digits in a, so he was having quite the week <laughs> was bob gilder at the time but just such a difference to, 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 to so gilder. much of There's the golf throwback. that we see day to day um and and i think that's I think that within our within our audience here, I think that's what people yearn for. Mm. Um, they don't want to see someone go full throttle at a six iron and launch it into the stratosphere and have that go two hundred and fifteen yards. I think I think creativity and difference and variety and inventiveness, understanding all of those variables that were there, as Adrian mapped out the, the difficulty of the shot. Um, I I just. I couldn't take my eyes off it. I just kept watching it again and again. I wonder whether, and it's not so much the numbers, is it? and it almost could be encapsulated thus, and I think this is what you're getting at here, Matt. You've got modern golf, which is very much track man golf. From this yardage, I use this swing, the ball takes this flight, it pitches at this distance, and it stops within this many yards. It's really quite scientific, and we see that week in, week out on the tour. You can't track man the shot that Gil Morgan hit, Adrian. No, you can't. There's, it's all feel and imagination, it would be fascinating to see the numbers on a track man of the shot that yeah. he hit, but yeah. I don't think you can learn that shot on track man. Can you or can you? You visualised it. And it's a half swing with a two yeah. iron as well, um, which you, you just never see. Like mm-hmm. you, you see, um, you know, Gary Woodland hit uh, knockdown shots. Mm-hmm. Tiger but, hits a lot of knockdown shots. Yeah, but there's still a vicious swing at the ball. And in fact, you know, if if Gary Woodland's hitting that shot, his swing kind of looks the same as his driver swing or his wedge swing. All of his swings are just they're kind of perfect mm. and there's, there's no manufacturing of the swing to shape the ball. Like there's, uh, there's just some physics happening around impact that are changing what he wants and making it do what he wants it to do. But for all intents and purposes, you just can't tell what shape of shot he's hitting from the swing that he puts on it. Um, whereas, you know, this, this shot of Gil Morgan and thinking back to a lot of the golf that you watched in the eighties, you really get a sense of, what they were trying to make the ball do as a result of the swing that they were putting on it. And I guess it might be a symptom of that era where 
people didn't get to see their swings much and no. they didn't have much of the the trackman metrics. So they were just feeling it and working it out. Um, when I do this, this is what happens. Yeah, and that's when I right. need that shot, that's what I'll do that's to make right. that shot happen. Yeah. Is there any reason why that should or is, in fact, more compelling to watch Adrian? Or are we just of a certain age where our era seems better the further in the rearview mirror it gets? I'm always conscious of this because it's a possibility, isn't it, that we're just glorifying a past because we were better then as well. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. And every generation does this, I, yeah. I suppose. Uh, you know, maybe if we wind forward 20, 30 years, people will be uh, lamenting the loss of the you know the Kepka era, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's 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 a hard one to answer. Um, where do you where do you stop progress on a sport? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we are seeing it in baseball where um, the the crowds are going down, like their attendance in baseball's gone down a little bit. With the ball, did I see something about it this week that they're mucking around with the balls in baseball? Yeah, they've different de- stadiums, deduced or? them for the right. for the World Series or something. I think. Um, which they seem to be able to do with little fanfare. They just said, just to, okay. Well, well it's, <laughs> it's one ball, isn't it? it, it yeah. It, there's, it, there's not five multinational companies producing balls and part of a billion-plus-dollar market. That's right. So there's a lot less contention when you want to muck around with the ball. And I guess an individual's performance might be a little less dependent on, hmm. uh, like the, the livelihood of any given individual might be a little bit less dependent on the performance of the ball. Um, but, uh, yeah, nonetheless... That that's a sport which seems to have benefited from uh, some sense of like freeze it in time. Yeah, this is we're going to control progress to this yeah. point, and that's it's not going to go any further. Tennis too, they've done the same thing. They use they've tried a couple well, of times with tennis. Speed of balls. Yeah, now. perhaps yeah. they've come to a point now in tennis where they've they've created another great era. Like for me, I'd love tennis to roll back to. You know, Lendl and Becker and Edberg and that era. I thought that was fantastic. And well, yeah, got, yeah, then, so. got fen- fond memories of yeah. that era for it's many nice. reasons. Yeah, right. uh, but uh, but now we've got some great rivalries again in tennis. So mm. I think this era will be looked upon pretty favourably. Matt, I'm, I'm mindful while we're talking about this that uh, not long after this this video was posted by uh, Rob, Phil Blackmar wrote a column. Phil's a TV analyst, a commentator on Golf Channel, a former fantastic player. In fact, he was a guest on the I Seek Golf podcast about 12 months ago or so. He's a fantastic guy, and he's going to be a guest on this podcast next week if all goes according to plan, so we can look forward to that. But he wrote a piece which had some really interesting ideas. Of course, the big discussion is what to do about the ball, and it's a vexed and complex question. Regardless of where you might stand firmly within the debate, I don't think anybody can deny that trying to do something about the golf ball to reduce the distance that the pros hit it is complex. It's not simple. It's a simple technological fix, but the politics around it are pretty complex. I know you read Phil's column where he essentially said, give us a choice. Make a ball that spins like the old Ballada, and some of us will choose to buy it and play it, and that will open a form of the game to a bunch of people that's not available to them now. What did you take? What did you make of Phil's book? I think there's maybe a few issues with some of the things he said, but just as a, as a general sort of idea, does that yearning for the ball that spins, it's part of the appeal with Gilmorgan shot is that you know that that ballada he's hitting is odds on to balloon and if it's got any kind of right to left spin on it with that wind coming from the from the right it's going to miss by 50 yards to the left and that adds to the allure of that shot I think when you understand that aspect of it what do you think of Phil's idea of offering a spinnier ball and essentially having two versions of the game by choice not mandated um I'm I'm a keen follower of Phil's I've Get his Twitter feed and 
look at all of his blog posts as soon as he puts them up. Um, it was it was certainly consistent with your suggestion that one of the objectives of any sort of regulatory change brings about a greater market. And that's one thing that I admire about your point of view on this discussion, Rod, is that you talk about growing that or expanding that number of people that can purchase things from the manufacturers mm. because they're going to be disgruntled come the day that the USGA and RNA ever decide to roll back, mm -hmm. which we earnestly hope they do. Um, I just I just had a tiny concern that Phil's post missed so much of the substance that's central to the, the distance debate and the whole issue. Um, if the, I mean, great, if there was a spinning a ball um, and, and we all enjoyed that form of the game that he describes quite well in his post, but I think that the existence of that ball and leaving everything else alone doesn't really address a lot of the concerns that I would have. Such as? Well, sure, um, what, the way the that issue? the game's played at the pro level, mm -hmm. uh, the distance that um, big, strong, but potentially poorly skilled or modestly skilled at best amateurs play the game. Um, I, I see the rollback issue as certainly multifaceted. It is very complex. I understand why people get frustrated or miss the point or... Because they don't hit too far, do they, Matt? The bloke you're playing with on Saturday does not hit it too far. There is no problem no, there's, there's, for most there's of very, us. There's very few of them. And I, yeah. I talk to people throughout the course of my day-to-day -day work. I have people come in to see me at my work who are female members on double-digit handicaps who can't drive at 175 metres. And they look at me when I talk about <laughs> a distance rollback and they think I'm out of my mind. And I can understand why they think that. But we've, we've heard Ian Andrew talk about... The top 10% of guys at golf clubs that create safety concerns for him in terms of how far they hit the ball. Um, the de-skilling effect of a far-flying, straight-flying ball um, is probably something that a lot of people are understanding more and more. They're not just talking about straight distance and yardage and numbers, but the fact that equipment these days homogenizes and and de-skills the game um and in the absence of a universal change to ball regs um those concerns are still going to be present mm, indeed it's a multi-faceted uh multi-faceted problem this is an arrogant thing to say adrian but your younger player doesn't know the fun they're missing out on because they've never had it. they've only ever had access to this technology i think aaron badley is the last touring pro i can think of who might have used a persimmon wood for his first year of golf when he was about 13. Right, yep. And after that... So mid-90s or early 90s Early 90s or yep. and has, yep. has never touched one since. Yep. So we've got probably two generations of professional golfers now almost who've never used a persimmon club or a ballade or don't know what that's about. So yep. there's there's that aspect of it. I think you had a couple of issues with Phil's well, I'm, idea as well. The fun part of it, I, I get... Because like, I enjoy playing with persimmon and and blades from the 80s and 70s and stuff but it's it's more of it as a novelty and mm -hmm. and also they're beautiful objects they're as well magnificent. 
persimmon in particular, yeah. I just think is it, it's just uh, look down on the grain of a beautifully made persimmon wood. There's nothing like it, is it? And I always felt that, even yeah. when they were commonplace. Yeah, I, I I would spend you know all my time, all my spare time at the golf course, and and half of that was just standing in the pro shop, just looking at L- looking at other players' bags around the putting green, you're pulling the head covers on. Like, oh, wow, exactly. look at this thing. Where'd you get that from? Yeah, beautiful. Bit creepy, but yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> and. Uh, so I've always I've always liked that aspect of it, and I continue to enjoy that aspect of it. Um, the thing in Phil's article about the joy of hitting all these different types of shots is something I don't really relate to quite as well because I can definitely hit the ball better with my modern golf clubs, and uh, I, I I think a very highly skilled player making this argument that you're missing out on all these wonderful shot options. I find that a little bit hard to take sometimes. Because you're a hack. It doesn't really resonate yeah. with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean that in an article. It's true. Most of us are hacks. We've got no idea where the ball's going when it right. doesn't spin, let alone if it does. I, I really don't have a lot of those shots in my bag. Well, you and, do. You've got them all. You just don't know when they're yeah, coming out. Exactly. Mm. That, and that's the point. I've, I've, and to some extent, I think that's the point mm. that Matt's making is that, you know, we're trying to eliminate those massive misses out of the game. And I, I used to hit some very wide shots with, you know, with my persimmon and ballada, I never got to play with ballada balls. Occasionally, they were like gold yeah. whether you'd wrap them in you'd, tissue. You'd paper. find one and <laughs> you'd, you'd hang on to it for a little while and until you put a cut in it. That's right. Um, even if you found one with a cut in it, you'd use it for oh, a little bit. Oh, for sure. Bit. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, they used to go pretty wide, um, but not massively wide. Like, it's not the situation where you're almost going a whole fair way to the right. or That shot in particular, um, I think, would be great to eliminate from the amateur game. So... The argument I don't think we should be taking out there is that you're missing out on playing all these wonderful shots because the majority of us aren't. Can't um, play. And the majority of us have better chance of hitting those wonderful shots with more modern equipment. Right. Yeah, understood. Um, that said, I don't think the ball makes a terrible lot of difference to, to us at all. Like We all hit it so imprecisely. Mm. The ninety nine percent of golfers hit it so imprecisely that so we're just having ball, ourselves big on. Drive the same game. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're just having ourselves on if we think that. Um, you know that it's it's much better for us to be using a modern ball versus an older ball. It's all just marketing, um, in my my opinion. Just with not the quite imp- all, but but most of it. A lot of it with the imprecise strike that we put on the you, ball. It's, it's if you had um, and you had, and low swing yeah. speeds too. Yeah, when you think right. that a lot of this stuff is optimized for people who are swinging appreciably mm. faster than the vast majority of us that tee it up on the weekends. Mm. Indeed. Matt, there was something interesting. Uh, Brendan James, the editor of Golf Australia magazine, raised this in his Twitter thread this morning about Phil's blog. And it was a column that I remember reading at the time by Jeff Ogre. And I was a bit confused about what he was saying. And I thought, hang on, you're blaming the courses here for a problem that's the fault of the equipment. But I think as I've thought about it, I, I, I get kind of what he's saying. His suggestion in that column, and I know you'll remember it too, Matt, was that if you set up the courses to demand a certain style of play, then the players will start to demand the equipment that allows to, them to play it. So in essence, what he's suggesting is you control the su- you control the supply via demand, not by supply. If you regulate the ball, that's a very confrontational way to go about making a change in golf. If you started to set up golf courses so that it demanded a particular style of golf, then that is what the pros would demand from the equipment manufacturers. I've probably put that more in a more complex way than I needed no, to. No. Can you see You're his right. I remember being confused at the time of what he was saying, but I think that's in essence is that Markets are best controlled by demand, not supply, aren't they? And there's elements of that in what Phil's suggesting. Rather than mandate, give Definitely. people a choice. 
Definitely. I remember being a little bit sus of Jeff's article when it first appeared. I thought that it was written by a guy wearing a Titleist hat. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've definitely moved away from that position as time has gone by. Um, because he's right. Uh, those guys were playing a six-week stretch where it was North Berwick one week and Cruden Bay the next, and they went to Lahinch the next. They would demand particular equipment from their manufacturers and their sponsors um, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be distance driven. It would be spin and control driven. And even even Brandall's touched on this point before. Um, and it, it it raises a very very interesting topic. In as much as people people fall on various sides of the debate as far as the influence of pro golf on the rest of us. Um, whether you think monkey see monkey do, whether you don't. Um, a lot of that stuff that's on the shelves and a lot of that stuff that's in our bags, the stuff that we use every weekend, that that, that comes from the tour. Um, they're not tour-issue clubs and tour-issue balls, but they're, they're the result of a manufacturer um, making balls and clubs with a, with a focus on elite performance that trickles down towards us. And if, if we follow Jeff's example in that article, we, we, move, we certainly move closer to what Phil is describing in his blog post. Um, Interesting. And it, and it, shapes, it shapes that market in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah. Interesting notion, Adrian. It's one that we talk about occasionally, the actual influence of professional golf. So my own belief is that it's the introduction to the game for a lot of people, and as much as they see it on TV and think, that looks interesting. Yep. I don't care about distance and all the rest of it. That looks interesting. I might have a go. So professional golf is an important role to play, doesn't it? There are a lot of people who are hardcore life golfers. Who cares what pros do? Who cares if they cannibalise themselves out of existence? I still get to enjoy my golf. I don't think that's a healthy or correct attitude. No, I, I think you you want to take an interest in golf in all of its forms um, if you really care about the game. And uh, I, I, I just always get back to the golf course, the way they're presented on, on professional golf. And I think that's, that's the, the start of everything. Without doubt. That's what the... Matt was saying there. If, uh, if they were optimising for a different challenge, the equipment would be different. Mm. And but as it is on the PGA Tour, they've got these homogenised courses with it's soft, green, a uh, lot of forced carries, um, the long rough around greens, bunkers in the rough, and are we seeing less of that? Per- perfect sand as well. Think? No. Oh, look, oh, well, there's exceptional weeks. Like I think people mm. are wanting to see some classic courses on TV from time to time, and we get excited about that. There's actually enough of that between all of the tours that we get to see quite a lot of great golf courses on TV. Um, Particularly yeah. with the women. The old yeah. BGA plays some magnificent golf courses. And then they play some, in contrast, they play some absolutely awful. Absolute rubbish, of course. Yeah, they're, they're, it's the whole spectrum. But, um, yeah, as a, as a viewer, I guess you get to see – you've got to find it. But across all of the tours, you do get to see quite a lot of variation. Mm. CJ Cup this week, that golf course is interesting. You know, it was – but is it a good model for – the rest of golf to be seeing that on TV? I, I don't think so because it's extra. Like it's just obvious how much money was up on mm. screen there when you're watching that. Um, the massive landforms and and shapes carved out of this. It looked like kind of mountainous territory. Mm. Though those nonetheless, they just did not look like natural landforms. Um, something like Corralbin Valley for Australian listeners might be something that they could relate to more that it's carved out of similar sort of scale mountainous territory, but the the holes all followed um, 
valleys and and go up and over and there's the odd blind shot and everything. I, I think the shaping of a Corralbum Valley, ironically, a Desmond Muirhead design who's known for outrageous stuff. <laughs> Octopus bunkers, um, et cetera, Mickey Mouse bunkers. None, nonetheless, it, there was there's basically normal-looking shaping um, to Corralbum Valley. Yeah. It fits in with that landscape. CJ Cup, I think, it's, it's just obvious how much money is involved in the shaping of that place and how much dirt got moved and to the point where they've got revetted bunkers. It's just, they've, like, they've tried everything. There was a recent change, wasn't there? I heard on the coverage that, that they changed to revetted bunkers. They yeah. tried to, to force them to hit out sideways. So there's a little bit of everything. It's a bit of a Franken course, and um, uh, I just don't think that's a great example. Mm. Their presentation is obviously just perfect and... Yeah. It's it's in in many ways if if that's what we're trying to put up there as the model of perfect golf, it becomes aspirational, doesn't it? And, yeah, and we know that golfers as a as a as a mass would rather play a poorly designed golf course in good condition. Yeah, which is completely wrong. Which expectation. is sort of the, the the wrong way around. Matt, leaving aside the distance for a moment, this is the great influence of professional golf or television golf, isn't it? Is the the way the courses are presented. And I think Adrian makes a good point. Ideally, one of the great beauties of golf or the joys of golf is when you encounter a course that sits softly in its landscape. And that that course at the weekend didn't do that. Many of the courses we see on TV don't, do they? Talk about the importance of that a bit. Oh, um, that's... It's it, a big I think question. it's very, very important. <laughs> no, no, it's very important. Unfairly, but... No, no, not at all. It's, I think it's very important. I, I think that um, those, those, best, those best golf courses... The courses that we really yearn to play, that we identify as being among the best in the world, they are wonderful designs and they're the creations of great architects, but I think that they all are united by the fact that they are of their place and that they they sit beautifully on their landscape and that they are at one with the topography, the vegetation is uh, of its site and, and sensibly maintained for golf and the, the broader landscape. I think that's something that everyone is probably conscious of, even though they might not overtly know it or be able to articulate it. Golf ultimately should, at its best, it always does look and feel natural, doesn't it, Adrian? But it's one of the things that gets missed. And I know we bang, I bang on about the image problem that golf's got. This is one of the problems that the island 18th green at mm-hmm. nine bridges, the 17th at sawgrass, that bright green grass, you see strips of it through the desert in Arizona during the desert swing, it sends out a woeful message to people who don't play golf and and don't understand that there's many of us within golf who don't think any of that is right. Yeah, it's a message, though, that the casual viewer likes. They, they enjoy receiving that message. It's, it's like, oh, look at that magnificent pictures, playing it? field. It's very pretty. <laughs> and a lot of those, you see that nine bridges, you plonk a camera down almost anywhere there, I guarantee you, you'll get um, pretty good golf porn, whichever, <laughs> whatever direction you point your camera in, it'll look beautiful. Um, so, the, you know, unfortunately, it, it's a it's an easy sell. So, um, I don't know what to do about that. But um, grab a non-golfer, introduce them to the open, and watch them turn their nose up or crinkle their their bringer. Yeah. Well, why are you watching this? What's man? going on there? What, yeah. What's that? Are they playing? Has something happened to that? It's all brown. <laughs> It doesn't look right. It's a real problem, isn't it, Matt? Genuinely a problem for the game more broadly because we see, and this is the fallout from it, and I keep going back to this one, the council in Strathfield just decided to close down Hudson Park Golf Course, which was no great golf course, but they did it with nary a 
a word of protest from anybody because most people just go, oh, golf, who cares? That's a danger, isn't it, Matt? It's a, it's a, it's a big concern. Um, there's, a, there's another little pocket of the, the city, the state, that loses the way in which it gets exposed to golf, um, the, the, the grounds on which it can play. Um, it's a concern. I know a lot of my friends talk about we, – we talk about this occasionally – um, many are a little critical of Golf Australia. They'd like to see some advocacy on this issue. Um, it's it's interesting from a town planning perspective and a council perspective as well. We we see urban landscapes sprawl and grow and grow and grow, and the the elimination of some sort of green wedge space seems very short sighted. Mm. Well, of course, the problem is that as they did at Hudson Park, the council's take was, well, instead of having this green space for the golfing few, we'll now turn it into <laughs> a park with a dam for the many, Adrian. It's, Those words were particularly they were inflammatory. Were they? <laughs> really, yeah. And the outcome you get when you remove these bits of green space is just this soulless expanse of housing that goes on and on and on. And uh, it's quite depressing to look at Google Maps sometimes in a big city and and just see these big blocks of colourless housing um, that just everywhere where you wipe around on the map, it's just it goes on forever. These are huge issues for golf and for the future of golf. If we fast forward fifty years and look back, how will we be viewed? This generation of golfers and those of us who have some voice in the media through podcasts and various other means, how will we be viewed? if we allow this to continue to happen. It feels to me like golf is really at a nexus here, Adrian, and these are really important issues because the truth of it is council should be promoting golf. Yep. It's no less important than football or cricket or netball or swimming, all of which is recognised by all levels of government. In fact, it's probably more important in some ways. Of course, I would say that because I'm a golfer, but if you look at the demographics who play... Yep. It's a great form of exercise. They're voters too. Well, absolutely, <laughs> but, but right into – there are very few 80-year-old footballers. No. I know plenty of 80-year-old golfers. Yep. Uh, you take away the golf course, you take away that bit of exercise from them. And, of course, at the other end, we don't have as much of it, but if we were in to encourage it, there's no reason why we couldn't have just as many 5-year-old golfers as we do 85-year-old golfers. Yeah. So these are all the things that council should be doing. Is Matt right? Is it the job of Golf Australia – to be promoting this. I think it is. Yeah. We've got, on the one hand, we've got it very good in Australia from a club golf point of view. We're lucky. You you don't, yeah, absolutely. We can afford to play golf in Australia's parts of the world. That's just not true. That's right. And we talked about this a little bit last week, I think, where we talked about the obsession with competition golf and how that stems from the club membership model where you've got, the only way to really get a game of golf is to be a member of a club because then you can put your name on a timesheet because seven days a week at Australian golf clubs are timesheeted. And then when you put your name on a timesheet, there's an expectation that it's going to be formalized in some way into a comp. And so we play all this competition golf. And I, there is this notion that that's, you know, that's too much. It's too much competition golf. We've lost sight of the joy of, but you know, the, mm-hmm. the beauty of that flower is available to me. Too. <laughs> that's um, true. But, yes. uh, the um the the thing i'd the point i'd like to make further on that is that uh that's actually a pretty envious mm. situation to have such healthy club 
golf. Um, Struggling. It's becoming less healthy each year, it would seem, at a lot of places. But that's, in a sense, that's like some of the programs that you see launched every single time the the club uh the club lobby, if you like, like the the golf manager, mm-hmm. golf management Australia, and, and clubs in general, have a lot of input on programs that start up um, because the first fear is always that they're going to take people away from club golf. Mm-hmm. So any new social program that starts up, for example, has to ensure that it's it's only attracting new people to the game and that it's viewed as a stepping stone to club golf membership. Um, so there's this. There's quite a lot of protections put around club golf uh, to keep that healthy. And, and if we budge an inch on that, the feeling is that the golf industry is going down the down the drain. If like the, there's the slightest little blip in club golf numbers. So I, I think if you do zoom back from that and look at other countries, we're actually in pretty good shape from a club golf point of view. And the courses that are closing down are so, uh, places where social golfers go, like a Hudson Park, where they don't have such a big membership. They all have memberships, I think, as we talked about. Pretty much mm. every club in Australia Australian. has memberships. But where they don't have uh, reliable, um, hefty sort of subs to draw on, mm. hefty by Australian standards, they really struggle to make a business out of it. And councils, I think, don't care about running it as a business. And the result is uh, public golf courses go under. Private golf courses tend to survive. Um, is that overall bad? Do we need more intervention from Golf Australia? Absolutely, we've got to we've got to do everything we can to prevent um, prevent those public courses going under. Because, but also, I think recognise that overall the game in Australia is actually pretty healthy, in my if, opinion. If you're a members club and you're afraid of the local public course, does it not pay to keep in mind that all of your future members? They're Almost probably learning to a person, the game there. are going to come from there. Yeah. Nobody, Matt, at the age of 15, thinks to themselves, I wouldn't mind a crack at golf. I'll go join Royal Melbourne, buy a $3,000 set of clubs and see if I like it. That doesn't happen, does it? People go to Albert Park no. with their mates, and out of the six blokes who go, one or two say, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to keep playing. And ultimately, they end up being club members. The problem's not with the golf, it's with the business model here in Australia. I'm not sure what the answer is for the way forward. I think Adrian's right with what he says there. A strong club membership model has served Australian golf well. But at some point, do we tip into an area where they become... um, they they sort of start hurting themselves by being too protectionist? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'd I'd, I'd defer to Adrian on on this sort of topic. Um, I think of my own path into golf and I I listen to the stories of others who've been really fortunate to be brought to the game by their fathers, their, their uncles, their grandfathers, their mums. Um, and, and certainly, uh, that's, that's one way that many people get introduced to the game and there's, there's several paths to golf. I'd, I just get concerned, harking back to the start of this topic, I, I get concerned when I see forums in which people can cut their teeth in the game slowly but surely disappearing. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a... Like everything in golf, nothing's quite so simple as it might. <laughs> Look, on the, yep. the silver bullet solution you come up with always ends up hitting some kind of bulletproof vest. <laughs> the, cor- the courses I worry about in Sydney, for example, Sydney golfers all will be familiar with, like Moor Park, East Lake, mm. yeah. North Ride... Those Fine ones. real estate, big tracts of land. And 
and many, many people's introduction to golf. Um, but they're also clubs that are supported by strong membership. Mm-hmm. So I've, it's they hit that sweet spot of having a lot of public access tee times, but a big enough membership to make them reasonably secure as businesses. They're always a little bit on the edge, but um, if they ever have negative pressure applied to them from a council or something like that, those clubs are going to quickly fold, and, and that'll be devastating for for golf in Australia, whether those those feeder clubs, um, where there's pretty high quality of golf as well. Those, mm. those are all three. Oh, absolutely. Those are three pretty good tracks, yeah, and um, they they actually are a great introduction to golf. And in in some ways, I think they're the most influential clubs in Sydney. Yeah. Um, much more influential, say, than you know Royal Sydney. Um, it's the unforgotten important element of golf, isn't it, Matt? Is the uh, and not everybody agrees about this, but uh, I think. Public golf, well-designed, interesting golf, does more for the game in the long term than number of public golf courses. So if we look at some of the examples, you say, well, Ringer Golf Club is 18 holes. There's been talk about taking back nine holes. And this is, don't pretend this is my idea. I think Clates is right about this. Clates says, that's fine. Take nine holes if that's what the community needs. But you have a responsibility if you do that to improve the other nine holes so that the golf is better and encourages more golf by more people to become more involved and stay in the game. It's quite overlooked, isn't it? The importance of yeah, decent definitely. design, good, interesting architecture for all levels of golf. And it's not expensive to do, not more expensive than much of the poor golf that we've got. Clates um, didn't mention it by name, but the course that he was discussing on your latest State of the Game podcast was Elstonwick, which mm-hmm. has closed and has been just preserved as a, as a park. It's a weed patch now, is it not? Yeah. I understand it. Just been allowed to grow um, over, and that was. It's it's hard to imagine that a that a nine hole course could be less inspiring, and and <laughs> Is that the kindest think, way you can put it. <laughs> it's 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 not two kilometres from the shore. It's, it's a, there was a tiny bit of movement there on the ground. It was sandy soil, and it's surrounded by. Millions of people and stacks and stacks of golfers. Short trip from the CBD, and you think this? Can you can you put a Himalaya? I know I'm singing from the same hymn book as Clates and everyone else, but could you not put a Himalayas putting green on this? Could you not have a nice cafe overlooking this? Make a few interesting holes and make it fun. It it, it has to be. It has to be good for golf, good for golfers. It, it would they'd enjoy it. They'd learn something about golf design. What, design. Why should I put this ball here? And oh, if I approach this green from there, and and it it has to be profitable. Surely, no one can no one can don't, convince don't me any, think, any Matt, different. Yeah, there's a lot of people who tell you councils don't care whether it's profitable or not. As much of it's about hmm. image as anything else. But more to the point, don't you think much of the problem with what you've outlined there, the Himalayas putting green, some short holes, or six holes, all those ideas. Most of the resistance to that comes from golfers themselves. I, I think it does. I, I think that um, we, yeah, we get locked into thinking that uh, we've got to have 14 clubs in our bag. Um, it's got to be championship length. There's got to be four par threes, four par fives. It's got to be 18 holes. Um, yeah, the notion that you would have a 12-hole course, that you'd have a seven-club bag, 
that, oh, the wind's really, really strong. Or, oh, this hole's a bit too long for me, so I'm going to move up a set of tees on this hole. What did you say? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> just forward. outrageous, Jesus, isn't man. it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, we, we do need to be a little more flexible in our thinking. Could, could you have put a racetrack around Elston? <laughs> Matt, you know, we get you so could. excited about horses inside racetracks. <laughs> Race why don't we bring the racetrack to the course? Oh, <laughs> oh, I grew up on. Although um, I tell you what, the yep. way the way horse racing's been on the nose in the last <laughs> that's right, ninety six yeah. hours bad, in yeah, Melbourne, bad combination, isn't it? Yeah, you don't want yeah. uh, you don't want a great <laughs> greyhound greyhound tracks out of the picture. Horse racing is no good. Uh, car racing makes a bit too much noise. Yeah. We come back to this, and always, always, and I, I do it partly because you've been there, Logue. What Matt's outlaid there is a version of Winter Park, is it not? And we know that it works because it's worked at Winter Park. Yeah, and on a very remar- unremarkable piece of land at Winter mm. Park as well. Um, but a very nice suburb. I think that made a difference. Um, uh, yeah. It, what are you it, saying it about It certainly works there. <laughs> It's a nice suburb too, so maybe that you know that there was the potential there. And yeah. All that needs is a racetrack, if, probably. But. If you work at a council anywhere in Australia and you're listening, be brave enough to be the first to do a winter park, and I suspect and hope you could watch the rest of the councils around Australia fall like dominoes to be doing the same thing, because it's a fantastic success story. Well, again, I, I want to just make a mention of um, Wallara. Because uh, I, I think that's we must go and play there. Actually, yeah. It, look, uh, we've got Winter Park in Sydney, and it's Wallara. Yep. It, it's a fantastic little mm-hmm. place, and uh, it, it, in some ways, it's much more vibrant and exciting a little community hub than Winter Park is in in Orlando. Um, uh, Wallara's uh, the golf there's pretty good. It actually doesn't need a couple of international architects to come in and and tear it up and redo it because it's no. already actually pretty good. Imagine what they could do though. It'd, it'd be fantastic. It's actually good land. It's sand based. Ridge, ridge runs through it. Part of it's sand based. There's a little canal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, it's got this footy oval there and beautiful old clubhouse. Uh, one of the best clubhouses in Sydney. Oh, it's really, really. It's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and uh, uh, there's a the thing I can't get past is the croquet. <laughs> There's a croquet club We're, right in the middle of of the golf course, with and it's it, little superintendent's hut. It's got the, yeah, it's got its own little superintendent's hut, and it's got a log cabin yeah. clubhouse, and it just looks like the most Phenomenal. amazing place. Like it's a great advertisement for croquet, actually. Which we also must go and play. Absolutely, that's a day out right there. <laughs> Matt, you can come up for that. We'll go and have nine holes at Wallara and croquet after. Yeah. So I'll do that. I, do, I just want to you know take every opportunity mm. to raise awareness of Wallara because yeah. I think it's a great example for other. Uh, and I've, I read the. Um, that local council's plan for that parkland and a big component of it was that they did an analysis that a lot of people in that suburb play golf. It was the highest participation sport, I think, okay. in that suburb yep. after walking. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, so they identified that this is key for our yep. the people in our suburb. They've even got a par four there with two greens. You played at the first one the first time around and the second time is one further. It's oh, the they second do hole? Yeah, that's second right. Hole, second hole, yep. second Yeah, along the boundary there, yep. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's some fantastic. So anyway, big questions there for golf. Once again, I'll say it again, and it's going to come out in a column I've written for this week. We need the 100-year plan. Someone needs to do the 50- or 100-year plan for golf with all of this stuff considered. No one's saying you can solve all of these problems today, but plan for some of the pressures and outcomes. It's not going to get any easier, Matt. Outside forces are exerting pressure on golf, not the least of them being climate. How long are we going to be able to just keep pouring water on golf courses without people saying, no, you can't do that? There are some serious issues coming up, aren't there? Definitely. And that's... I was 
was preparing an answer when you when you said how will we be viewed fifty years from now um, when people look back at, at golf and oh this is what this is what happened at the start of the two thousands. Um, there's there's some there's some massive issues ahead for the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's all going well if you're Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods. It's lovely at that end of the game. Never been a better time to be a professional golfer. And that appeals to a lot of people who've got some talent for the game, that there's a pathway there to make a living and a very good living and all of those sorts of things. So that part of the game is going to be okay. But if the pathways keep closing off the way they are and golf doesn't deal with some of these outside pressures, starting with educating internally golfers themselves, in 50 years the golf could could really uh, be in trouble. Logue, I know yeah, it'll I'm- be different, definitely. Um, there was there was one there was one quote that came to mind. Um, There's a, a feature interview on Golf Club Atlas a few months ago that generated a great quote, um, where a chap wrote that a game dependent upon so much of the Earth's acreage on a shrinking planet with finite resources is inevitably going to be on the wrong side of history. Yep. And that's water's going to be such a big deal and yeah, in, in massive. 50 years time we may well be looked upon as being completely irresponsible with that unless golf, golf gets ahead of that and that's what you need to see the game itself showing the rest of the world golf should be saying to other industries this is how you reduce water use this is how you grow grass and plants and i know that there's issues about it but the, the notion of denmark going completely pesticide free mm-hmm. That sets an example, it sends a message that, hey, we know we're part of a community and we have a responsibility to be a responsible part of that community. Golf needs to do more of that. You see it in pockets, but there needs to be some sort of a united front presented in all places where golf is played. Uh, that's hugely important and yeah. it, it needs to happen. It's not a, not a wish list stuff. Let's change gears a bit. You've noted it here in the list. Listen to Carl Murphy on Augusta Rollback. Have you got that tweet handy, Adrian? Because I thought this was interesting. And uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, Matt's got <laughs> Matt's got something to contribute there as well. So tell us first what Carl Murphy said about the Augusta Rollback, which is something that's been discussed, not ad nauseum, but frequently for a long time. I'm stretching here. Did you find it yet? Carl, <laughs> uh, Carl Murphy said... Uh, uh, that's Aussie Golf Quest, by the way. Carl's great mm-hmm. guy. He's, played, he's um, on a I'm, quest. I'm, I'm stretching now. Uh, he's, I think, has Carl gotten through the top 100 courses in Australia, Matt? I think he has. Yeah, I think he has. Yeah. I, I know that he's he's shifted focus from a 2014 list to a 2016 list. He's been to King Island. I think he's yeah. I think he's systematically ticked off anything that's been considered on Australian Golf Digest or Golf Australia's top 100 list. Any stage in the last six years. Well, if he, missed, if he missed Hudson Park, it's too late now. What's he, <laughs> yep. had, to say, what's he had to say about the Augusta Rollback? He says, content is great, which is what really matters. That's, he's talking about our podcast there. Right, um, but then he goes on to say, I think the real question is, will it be the ruling bodies or Augusta National Golf Club who take the lead on the distance debacle, he calls it. Nice alliteration there with distance debacle. Uh, you've responded, you've bought into this argument there, Rod, saying Ooh, I um, that. that's the $64 million question. Ooh. You said that uh, we're a long way from Augusta trying to go it alone, but we also feel we're moving closer to something happening. It could be an interesting end to the year, you've said, mm-hmm. and the debate goes on. But yeah, I, I do think, I mean, there is always this opportunity out there that Augusta National will just get sick of buying land around the golf course and trying to extend the length of their holes or trying to come up with various uh, tricks to um, make the course play longer. Uh, but 
and, and you know the easiest solution for them to do would just be to have a tournament ball. Um, I think I think that's what he's alluding yeah. to, right? Yeah, well, as, as lots of people have. For and wouldn't quite that be fantastic? Uh, the point is, they're the only people who have the power yeah. to do that because everybody's still going to want to play there. You might you, you'll get a bit of you'll get a lot of grumbling, but people will still play there. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm not convinced of that, but we'll go to Matt and see yeah. what yeah. he had to say about it, and then we won't come back to that issue. I I, did, I agree. Let me say at the start, I agree with everything that Adrian just said. They're, they're perfectly positioned to implement that sort of change at Augusta National. I, I just don't think that it's ever going to happen. I see them lengthening and lengthening and lengthening. They have the deepest pockets in the game. Um, and, and I keep coming back to uh, Chairman Ridley's press conference that he held on the day prior to the start of this year's Masters. Um, he was repeatedly asked questions on the distance to base, um, a Masters ball, uh, his views on what the USGA and RNA are doing in this space. Um, someone specifically asked him about the potential for a Masters ball and Fred Ridley replied by saying, I think it's very unlikely that we would ever produce a Masters ball. There are a whole lot of reasons for that, but I think you can be pretty assured that that's the case. As it relates to other things we might do, I mean, there are numerous architectural enhancements, if you will, that have been made to Augusta National over the years, and there are a lot of options we have for making the course more difficult that don't necessarily translate into distance or to lengthening the course. So... Pretty clear enough. Well, I'm sure <laughs> Very you clear can, and not great reading for us. I'm sure you uh. can join me, uh, Matt, in my suspicion of Chairman Ridley because of, like, I, I was like suspicious of him right from the moment from the get-go when I saw what a great head of hair he had. <laughs> and a fantastic yeah. player too. Yeah. <laughs> Two-time two Masters um, participant as an yeah. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of politics there that the, that most rank-and-file golfers might not be aware of as well and as much as um, he served a, a very senior role within the USGA mm-hmm. and there are multi-generational ties between the upper echelons of the USGA and the Augusta National membership, Um. Augusta National probably don't see themselves as being in the role of governing the game globally, um, and, not, and not he's certainly not going to. Well, they have massive influence. <laughs> yeah, they certainly and, do, and they exert a lot of pressure. I think they love pulling some strings. Yeah, no but, question there, yeah. but uh, I think you're right about that, Matt. But my concern, and what I think is probably their concern, ultimately is I don't think in this modern era. I think it was probably true ten or fifteen years ago, but if you said today we're introducing a Masters ball. And 40% of the players who would otherwise be in the field were told by their various sponsors, you're not playing because of that. I think you would start to see the cracks that might ultimately damage the tournament irreparably in the long term. And I do think, I would not have said that that was a possibility 10 years ago, but I do think so now. If you look at the money that the players are being paid by manufacturers... Uh, yeah, well, Matt's Matt's doing Matt's. You're fulfilling Clates's role beautifully here, Matt. With the, uh, <laughs> noises in the background. I had to, um, just a little shout out for Clates. Yeah. Didn't have a zip handy. No, that's right. I do think that that's what they would have in back of mind because the game has changed to a point. If you look at the contracts that some of the top players have have signed and the amounts of money involved, who is their real master? I have a counterpoint. Yeah, Rod, I'm open to that. Um, Augusta National, on occasion, have shown themselves to be. Um, there's a horrible moral ambiguity, ambiguity about the whole place and its history and everything. But one thing that they've done from time to time is taken 
actions or stuck with certain beliefs and or their approach to certain things where there's absolutely no financial sense in doing what they've done. Um, for example, no advertiser, um, mm. no, no visible advertising, mm. ridiculously cheap parking, ridiculously cheap uh, Ironically, they've turned all of that, that into sort of, a massive financial success. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So occasionally, and it's the thing, like when we talked about the Australian Open, it's the thing I feel like the Australian mm. Open should try and take away from an Augusta National is that, uh, you, you take what's unique about your championship and just ring fence that and protect it above all else. And for Australia, I think it's the fact it's a national open. It's not affiliated with any international tour, so it, it's not in danger of having its field usurped by a bunch of players who are just trying to win FedEx Cup points or race to Dubai points or something like that. If you're playing in the Australian Open, you're trying to win the Australian Open trophy, you're trying to win this national championship. Augusta National, I think, has set an example there with protecting certain aspects of that, of what makes that tournament unique. And despite all sorts of financial pressure, holding on to those, which ultimately leads to out-of-this-world success. Um, and a ball, I think, would be one of those things that's initially very unpopular, but ultimately, imagine what people would pay to get their hands on an Augusta ball. Like it doesn't matter how. You know. well, leaving all that aside, so the, the comparison you draw between Augusta and the Australian Open doesn't work because whilst all of those financial pressures for all the money that Augusta gives up, it's got plenty in the bank, so it doesn't need it. It comes from a position of power that the Australian Open doesn't it, hold. It wasn't always like that. Though. No, no, it wasn't. And, and the Australian Open, I feel like, could. I agree with you. I love your plan. A number of years of decline. I love with your plan for the Australian Open. I do. It it needs a number of years. It'll never happen, which is one of the most appealing (laughs) things about it. (laughs) I love your plan for the Australian Open to take a step backwards. You've got to be not afraid of having things decline for a few years. The issue isn't Augusta National. The issue is the players. So we're now at a point in the game where the players drive the bulk of the interest. We know that financially and from all other avenues. If at any point, just like with the President's Cup and the Ryder Cup, and I suspect it's going to happen at some point, as soon as one top player says no, it opens the door. We saw it with the mm-hmm. Olympics. Yep. As soon as one top player says no, now that might take a while, but at some point there's going to be a top player. If not now, then in 10 years, part of the contract that they sign with their manufacturer will be I won't play the Masters because they don't let me use this ball or this equipment. Then it becomes an issue. I think that's the problem that Augusta National is looking forward and saying we don't want to go there. They they won't, but they've had the courage to do that sort of thing in the past. Nothing where they, like where that. they take no, a hit, not on the field, financially, yes, but not on the field. The, the field that yep. tees up. The field, in fact, has always been the appeal of it. It's the smallest field of the majors, and it started with it was a. Oh, I got in trouble last time I said this. A garden party for Jones and his friends, essentially. Yep. At the start, so that it was—it's always been all about the players, the player experience. Every player who's been there will tell you what they do with the amateurs every year. So I think, I think that's personally—I don't think Augusta National has the amount of power and influence most people think. I think they're worried. No. If, if the players turn their back on it, all they have is just another tournament. Hmm. It's one of the things. If they do have that sort of power, what's the point of hoarding all that power? They might as well use it for something that changes the game the same, permanently. You make the same argument about the money. It's yeah, the point of hoarding yeah, all the money. Exactly, it's, you know, that's what people do. So. They've, they've got it. They might as well. It's like a politician who's got a, a heap of um, uh, goodwill in the bank. They've got to use it on that's something that's difficult. Yeah. yeah. What do you reckon, Matt? What do you reckon about all of that? 
Do you reckon what I'm suggesting is completely ludicrous, or is it a possibility that at some point in the future, ties to a manufacturer become more important for a player than any given event? Oh, ideally, hope not. Um, so so I it all, by the way. I can't, I'm advocating I can't imagine. That is a great way forward. I'm just saying. I think it's a. Yeah, was it? I can't imagine. I can't imagine a player sitting out the Masters. Um, I just. I. I. That'd be inconceivable to me. Um, the one. The one ray of light would be the guys like. God, I can't believe I'm saying this. Patrick Reed and Brooks Kepka, <laughs> who seem to be breaking the mould in terms of signing a really tight prohibitive contract for 14 clubs and the bag and the apparel and everything else. They're, they're mixing mm. and matching to, to use what best suits them and they're building themselves some flexibility. Good point. Um, and if, if that model becomes more widespread, then your fear regarding prohibitive contracts and players participating where they might not be able to use their ball, that becomes less likely. You're right. That's the counterpoint you needed, Logue. That's the one you missed. <laughs> well done, Matt. Uh, you've uh, you've opened my eyes to an alternative there, which is fantastic. There's only about 40 uh, issues on the list that we missed today, but let's wrap it up because we've kept you long enough, Matt, and you do have some work to do. Fantastic of you to join us. We really enjoyed it. Looking forward to having you back with Will to talk about the Rollback Alliance, which, funnily enough, will probably be just a repeat of this episode with slightly different words. <laughs> but interesting right, it'll, be, it'll, be a, it'll be a must-listen for fans of the drinking game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's right. absolutely walloped by the end of that one. Yeah, they um, but no, thanks for having me. Uh, big shoes to fill for Derek. We've left him some homework, so definitely some stuff to talk about on subsequent podcasts. No doubt at all. Thank mm-hmm. you, Matt. And Adrian, always terrific to have you in the studio and here as part of the podcast. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Rod, and thanks very much, Matt. Thank you very much, Matt. That wraps up episode five of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Don't forget to go and follow us on Twitter uh, at underscore Good Good Golf. That's, why is it a power move, Adrian? The underscore. It's it's all you've got when you can't get the the, good, the name good that you actually want. <laughs> it's all you got the fallback on. It's, it's the secondary power you move. Can put, you can put the underscore in the middle of the word. Oh, that's horrible. It gets a bit that's wordy. Horrible. You can put it it's at horrible. the end, but I feel like that feels like an afterthought. I think putting the underscore up front. I, I missed the capitals too. They should have been capitals. I, I did that for you. I took care of that. Oh, did you? Fantastic. Well, I gave you access. Fantastic. Uh, Just a note, not all the tweets you see on the good, good feed will be from me occasionally. (laughs) Derek or Adrian causing trouble. So uh, that wraps up episode five. Thanks for tuning in. Look forward to your company again. We have Phil Blackmar join us next week here on the Good, Good Golf Podcast.